The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. If you will, we'll be in really in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8 and three verses of chapter 9. <laughs> it, for whatever reason, it, it, it goes together a little bit better. Um, I'll, I'll actually skip ahead on one point. But, you know, the Lord, the Lord orders our steps in such a way and He orders the Word in such a way. Um, he goes before us and prepares our hearts for things. And uh, this this message, this message we get to apply a little bit more this week. And really, what we're talking about is as we're applying, we're looking at the Book of Nehemiah from a Christian Reconstructionist perspective. And what that means is, for us, it's faith for all of life. It's it's constantly more than <laughs> it's it's more than just. I believe in the Bible. I believe Jesus is our Savior. I believe that He rose again. It's just more than just statements. It's how do we take it and apply it. And last week we talked about immigration in a little bit in the sense of the immigration debate. Um, the uh, There's so much more toward uh, not only that, but the, talking about the biblical uh, view of walls and gates and all that kind of stuff, all the arguments that I've heard. No, we wouldn't normally talk about it from that. We'd read that passage of scripture. We'd talk about how they finished the work. But when we talk about application, that's you know not all these things were written to us, but they are written for us. And that's why, as I grew up, if someone had just told me that, I probably would have applied more scripture. I would have actually looked at the Old Testament because to me, hey, the Old Testament wasn't written to you, so it you know it's everybody kind of ignored it unless it was talking about a great fish swallowing up Jonah. You know, talking about how we need to be missionaries, or you got, or you have um, Mother's Day and Father's Day, and you got the Proverbs 31. It would go there. Very seldom does someone go to the Old Testament and look at it and say, "How does this apply to us today?" It might not have been written to us, but it is for us. And when we look at this passage of Scripture today, if you want to put it up there, Grace, it really comes down to this topic: sin, conviction, repentance, and rejoicing because of the law of God. And, and this might be a topic for both of us that we've gone through a little bit here there, but I message this intentionally because in this way because of the very nature of God's law word when it's applied properly to all of life. There, this is not just a one-time thing. This is not just about finding Jesus and then years later uh, finding Jesus and then that's it. This is a, as I look at it, and I'll even make the statement, I'll say it again, it's almost as if it's part of our sanctification. It's the working out. It's recognizing sin, being convicted of our sin, repenting of our sin, and what? Rejoicing because of what God's done in us to free us from that sin. And it's a constant aspect, but we have to start somewhere. And so I'm going to be a little hard at first, not on us as just as individuals, although I think sometimes we try to... It, it, what I'm going to do is give you a kind of a scapegoat at first, and then I'm going to then I'm going to I'm going to sink you with it. Okay. Um, the thing is, the first point this morning in our sermon notes is this: acknowledgement of sin is a primary failure of the church today. Acknowledgement of sin is a primary failure of the church today. Now, some would say that's all that, all that people talk about. They're so pietistic that that's all they talk about is my sins or other people's sins. And that's right. That's what I'm saying. Acknowledgement of sin is the primary failure of the church today because we acknowledge other sins. We, we often acknowledge other shortcomings, but we don't acknowledge our own. And the thing is, is how do you move forward? How can you with a straight face move forward if you don't acknowledge your own sin and not just say, well, I'm a sinful man. What a worm am I? No, acknowledge that sin and what do we do? We go from there. The word sin, when we look at several catechisms in the Reformed faith, sin is what, this is the definition of it. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now the word want, it's not saying, oh, I want to conform to it. No, it means you lack 
you're lacking in this, you're wanting in this area. When you do not, you have this, this uh, I'm not saying it's a desire. What I'm saying is you have a lack therein. You have a depleted area here. That's what it means. There is a want or a need in this area. It's any Sin is any want of conformity. That means there is a need for conformity. Or it is a transgression of the law of God. That means we have sinned against the word of God. Okay? So good, I know that people will say, well, sin is missing the mark. And I know what Romans says, that all of sin and fall short of the glory. I will talk about that in a moment. But the thing is, is it's not just missing the mark. It's mi- missing a specific mark. And honestly, what happens is sometimes we don't want to conform to the law of God. That's sin. There's other times that we transgress the law of God. One is sinful omission, and one is actually doing the very act. We, there are sins of omission, and there are transgressions which we actually cross and do that which is not uh, we're commanded not to do. You see the difference? I mean, this, they're both there. So some people say, well, I'm innocent because I really didn't do anything. Well, that's why Jesus even said, if you lust in your own heart after a woman, you committed adultery. It wasn't just a very physical act. It was a mental act that com- that's, has other things attached. So let's move on from here. This is a very small part of the message this morning. But A, I use the word men, meaning men and women, but mankind. We lack knowledge because the law word of God is kept silent by those who are called to proclaim it. This is where I told you. I'm going to give you a scapegoat, and then I'm going to hang you with it. Okay? Just like Spurgeon. Spurgeon would tell you all, all the ways he's going to tell you. Charles Spurgeon would write a sermon out. He would tell you everything he's going to tell you, and then he breaks it down and tells you and elaborates on it. I'm just going to go ahead and give you this. Men lack knowledge because the, of, because the law word of God is kept silent by those who are called to proclaim it. This is an aspect of the failure of the church today. Once y'all got that, in our theme passage this morning, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, it says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Okay, early morning to midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra and the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made, a per- made for the purpose, and beside him stood uh, Mattiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and uh, Maaseah. I can't even say those words, but anyway, names on his right hand, and all these other people were on his left hand. And Ezra opened, verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered. Amen, amen. You know what that means? Truth, truth. Lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their, their God, uh, Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, all these other guys helped the people to understand the law. These men, what did they do? They took time to help them understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, Clearly, and they gave the sense so that they, that the people, understood the reading. They took time to apply what they heard. Somewhere around five hours or so, standing. In the book of Hosea, it says something a little bit elaborates on this, but I want you to understand the reason why they did not know is because it had not been spoken to them in the midst of their exile. What had happened? They had basically lost the word of God and the very commands. They had turned aside from them because they did no longer hear them. And those who were supposed to preach it and proclaim it were no longer proclaiming it. Everyone was doing their own thing. Hosea chapter 4 verses 1 through 14 says, Hear the word of the Lord. O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. 
They are swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and every even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for what reason? This is one of the passages everyone needs. For lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it should be like... it should be. It shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters, though, when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with the prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Want to see? That's a lot of saying right there, but I want you to understand. What is it? The lap... In the land, no one knows the word of God. They have no knowledge. Because those who are commanded to proclaim it have not proclaimed it. They have not lived it. They have not tried to do what they've been commanded to do. So here's a quick lesson. And I know all the language at the end. Sometimes we get nervous around having kids around hearing those words. But I want you to understand the very truth of what was going on. This is a word picture of what was going on. It was not necessarily a physical act. It might have been, but I, I want you to look at this. Here's the thing. lesson we learned here is that when people give themselves over to idolatry, it's not only because they are idolatrous in their hearts, but because those who are to be a light in the darkness are rather those who lead them and take part in the idolatry. The idolatry can be anything from worship of the state or nation, the local church, or even the pastor. The people of God are destroyed from both the willful lack of knowledge I'm from that which is willfully withheld from them. Some people withhold certain things in order for other things to have, for them to, to receive benefits of it. <coughs> and that's what I'm getting at. There are some who withhold so that the people trust in them. It's no longer about the Lord. It's no longer about His people. It's, no, it's about a certain kingdom, but it's not the Lord's kingdom. See, the, the B is, here it is, B, the powerful proclamation of the gospel is essential. I don't care what comes up. I don't care what the topic is. I don't care what, and I use the word I don't care, I'm saying that statement for a reason. I am not concerned about whether or not it's popular or if it's going to take away time there is a, a gospel aspect is means that we are applying the word of God to all of life. There has to be a foundational purpose behind why we believe what we're believing. When you go to give someone, um, give them advice because they asked for it, if it's not built upon the foundation of God's word in that place, your your advice is useless because all it is <coughs> then is an opinion. You might have had experience. And it might have worked for you this way. But the truth is, it might have worked for you and everything might have turned out, but it might be a complete rebellion against the very Word of God. And there are times that I've done some very good things, but in the same way, I've rebelled against God in doing those things. They seem to be good on the surface. They seem to be pure in heart. But the reality is, is it had a different reasoning behind it. It could have been self-centered and self-serving. The powerful proclamation of the gospel is essential. That's why Romans 1, I know I've got a lot, I told Grace I've got a lot of scriptures this morning, a lot of longer scriptures, but I want you to think about this. Romans 1, 
I'm going to kind of highlight some of these things. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We know that aspect. Uh, we've, we've talked about this passage of Scripture. We talked about how the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I want you to understand, if we don't look at any other aspect of this Scripture right here, the proclamation, the powerful proclamation of the Gospel is the essential part of everything we do and we believe. It is foundational to our faith. It is foundational to everything that we believe. It's foundational how we run our families, how we educate, how we work, every aspect. The Gospel is a foundation behind that. And when we look at this, if it's the powerful proclamation of the Gospel is essential to all of life, then when all things happen, whether it be someone has sinned, someone is walking in sin, someone is walking contrary to the Word of God, or someone is looking for future, their future, uh, what, whatever they're doing for their, their future vocation, whatever it is, we need to be searching out what is a godly vocation, what is a godly thing for us to do. How do we honor Him in that? We are told that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're told in verse 21, although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The I'll give you this. When people come to you many times for advice, when people come to you seek in the middle of struggles and they're searching for things, they're wanting something they can hold on to, something they can physically do or something they can physically hold on to. Folks, that is an idol. And you know what? Even when they come to cry on your shoulder, you can become an idol to them. And what we we're called, what they call that today is enabling. We can enable people to continue in sin. We can enable people to walk in their transgressions. We can enable people to not even grieve properly when they need to grieve. They need to or change their life because we can try to be the Holy Spirit for them and we try to intercede on their behalf. I, I'm getting to this for a reason today. The gospel is what they need. They don't need, they, they might need us to prayerfully support them. They might need us to correct them. They might need to do that. But ultimately, they need Jesus. Now, He is not an idol. He is the only true source of life and life abundant. We go on, and they, these people often, they know righteous, God's righteous decree, but those who, that those who practice certain things in life, they deserve to die. Verse 31, 32 and 30, uh, 32, it says, but they not only do them, but they give approval to those practice, practice those. What people need is the gospel. They need the word of God. Because there is no other foundation. Romans 3, verses 9 through 28. And once again, I'm not going to read it all. But we've already charged it said that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. That none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It goes on in verse 19. It says, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ uh, for all who believe, there, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation uh, by His blood to be received by faith. And I want you all to understand the reason why, we put, why I put this there is ultimately that in, in every situation what people will seek apart from Christ, they need to seek Christ in this aspect. They will not seek after God on their own apart from Christ. What they need is not, hey, you just need to work through it this way, you need to find a new way to get through it, but they need God's Word. They need to hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Point number two this morning, I know there's four points um, and this is just point number two. When the law word of God is faithfully proclaimed, conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit occurs. 
I had to write that specifically that way. Have you ever have you ever heard a pastor preach that that intentionally tries to guilt everyone into a certain direction? Have you ever heard someone preach a message that is intentionally to guilt people a certain way? And it usually is a manipulative way for a certain purpose, and it usually serves that pastor or that church. Okay, and I'll, and I'll share that with you. Um, and I, I don't I don't speak of pastors this way just because I, I think I'm I, I like to be cruel. I like to be um, rude in any way. I want you to understand that that conviction apart from the holy apart from what the by the Holy Spirit is not conviction. It's it's it is a an oppressive guilt put on someone. In in Nehemiah, in our theme passage this morning, verses six to twelve, it says, "And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands." I, I'm kind of backed up a little bit so you see this. Lifting up their hands, and they what? They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Okay, so in verse 8, they said they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave sense so that people understood the reading. Now let's look at verses 9 on through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who is not nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy, joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. But I want you to understand, why were they grieved? Why were they saddened? They were hearing the word of God the law of God being read, and what was happening? They were being convicted by it. Now, I, 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 I've seen people who have been convicted. Every time they get around the gospel of the Word of God, they're convicted. I've seen people weep and moan and go, and there's, no, there's nothing beyond that. We'll talk about why. But they're convicted by sin. When the, law, when the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed, conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit occurs. It might not be that everyone is convicted by that sin or by that situation, but God works in His Holy Spirit. See, the Word of God, A, the law Word of God brings conviction of sin. The law Word of God is going to bring conviction of sin. Because if you just took the Ten Commandments in themselves, beyond breaking it out you know, and, and applying it every which direction, just the Ten Commandments... Everyone in this room has broken the Ten Commandments. Every one of them. Believe it or not, we probably have broken every one of those commandments. Not in the way we think of it, but if you've taken something from someone's house or their yard or your business without permission, without compensation for it, that is theft, whether we like it or not. Even if someone's going to misplace it, or it's no big deal. I, I think we don't think of these things often enough. Romans and back in Romans three verses twenty, what did we say the, when we talked about this? It says, "By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. By just going through the motions, folks, nothing. We're not justified in the sight of God just by going through the motions of keeping the law, trying to keep the law. What are we justified by? It's through the law. It says, through the law comes a knowledge of sin." The, prophet, the law and the prophets, they bear witness. And it talks about how we all sin. In book of John, chapter 16, he even wrote, uh, it, it's written, it's, he says, Jesus said, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning as I was with you, but I'm now going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me where you are going. Where are you going? But because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, what is he going to do? He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I do go to the, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, and for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. He will take the Word of God and He will declare the truth. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will, he, when he will guide you into all truth. Now we find in the Word of God, the Word of God is convicting. It's a, it makes us knowledgeable of sin. Paul even wrote, Yet if it had not been for the law, in chapter 7 of Romans, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then he goes and he uses the example of covet. You shall not covet. And then all types of covetousness had come up in him. He said the very commandment in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, it was sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. He said, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and the righteous and good. He said, did that which is good, did the commandment, uh, did the law of God then bring death in me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was, what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law word of God will bring conviction of sin because it will show us and make us knowledgeable of that sin. That's why when someone says... Well, ladies should wear dresses and never wear any type of pants. I like to say that because every woman in here is wearing pants. Um, if someone comes and says that, show me that in Scripture. And the first thing he said, well, listen. It says a man is not supposed to wear women's clothing and a woman's not supposed to wear men's clothing. I said, that's really interesting because basically everyone wore undergarments and, and a robe. They didn't wear pants in Jesus' day. So tell me, what would identify the difference between a man and a woman? Most likely, it was their hair or their head covering. Most likely, different types of head coverings. If you look in the Middle East, you'll see the different colorations. It's no different than the kilts of the Scots, right? If you look at it, there was a, there was a defining thing. But when someone says, well, women aren't supposed to wear dresses, always they're supposed to wear dresses because that defines them as a woman. I was like, if you can't tell that that's a woman by her being a woman, you got other problems. Okay? It's not. It's imposing something as being sin, but that's not what it. The law doesn't speak of that. <coughs> the law is not speaking of how one is dressing. The law is speaking regarding what is a transgression of the law of God. What is something that is want of conformity unto the law of God? When it's about that, it's personal convictions and personal opinions. The true conviction. Chapter uh, number three, true conviction leads to true confession. Listen, I can feel guilty about things that I do, but I can also not be convicted and confess that as sin. Sometimes you feel bad about things. Like sometimes you didn't really do something wrong necessarily, but you hurt someone's feelings. You can feel bad about hurting their feelings, but you don't really feel bad about what you did. It is not necessarily a simple thing. It wasn't intent. But you can feel bad that it could be portrayed that way or thought that way and you aren't thoughtful enough sometimes. It happens. But true conviction about sin leads, for the believers, especially the one who is, believe, is a believer or those who are believing, leads to true confession. That's why I said I would jump to Nehemiah chapter 9 for three verses. It says, On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, basically sitting in at, basically almost like ash, and they were fasting. And it says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Then they stood up in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. True conviction always leads to confession. If you take this whole story, this whole account and, and throughout the history of this, and you look at what has come up, they, they've, had to, they've had to confess a lot of sin. It started with even Nehemiah, the whole purpose of why he's there. He started with confessing the sin of himself and his forefathers. And he was burdened before God and he repented for others. See, confession under A, confession is part of repentance. 
if someone someone talks about conf- about repenting without confession, um, it's an issue. And this and I can tell you this, even with my own family, growing up, not too in the recent past, this passage of scripture I'm going to use really hurt. Uh, it upset me because of the person's response. But confession is part of repentance. And within the body of Christ, I'm not saying that everybody should just out that everybody here should just just outwardly just start yelling out their sins. I don't believe that. I don't think some things need to be kept private. And when I say even private, it might mean that you go to someone specifically and you talk about these struggles and you talk about those things and there's a sense of brotherhood and prayer or sisterhood and your prayers prayer for those things and there's accountability there. Not every, when it talks about this aspect, but confession, confession is a part of repentance. You can't repent without confessing of sins. You can feel sorry for something, but you can't really have repented for it. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, was, is a great passage of Scripture regarding prayer. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Listen to what it says. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, I remember speaking to a family member and it broke my heart, but really, it really upset me because they said, I don't have to answer to anyone. I don't have to confess my sins. I only have to, there to have, there's one judge that I have to stand before. And I want to tell you, part, we do have one judge who is supreme. And we are to go before Him. We are to confess our sins. We are to confess our sins before Him, yes. But when Scripture says to confess your sin before others, before your other brothers and sisters in Christ, when we do this, you know, when I struggle with something, I want to call someone. I want to sit down with someone. And I want to talk to them. And it might be the small things. It might be big things. But you know what? I think that's one of the aspects of what makes you part of the body of Christ and community of believers. And when we don't do those things, we are actually doing the direct opposite of it. We're just, we're, it's just a, it's a useless thing. It says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it works. There's other there's, there's other translations says it's powerful and effective. Or powerful with power and effect. It gives the example that uh, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And it didn't rain for three years. They might say, whoa, 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 what's up with that? You know what? Sometimes we pray imprecatory prayers, which means in order for repentance and judgment of God to come, that people would repent. It says, In six months it didn't rain on the earth. And for three years and six months it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Confession is a part of repentance. And I, I think this is key, because what in our, in our philosophy, in, our, in most of our lives, what happens when someone does something wrong to you? Are you wrong someone? We want to just say, I'm sorry, and move on. And I understand the whole aspect, but sometimes when I say I'm sorry and I, I'm ready to move on, in my conscience, I've, I know I've been forgiven for it by the Lord. I've come before and confessed it. I just want to move on. But what happens with other people? It might have affected them hard, really harshly. It might have affected them in such a way that although they will forgive you, what happens? There's still a scar to remind them. They look in the mirror Every day, and I said the mirror. Every time they see you, every time they hear your name, or, or what, they might have a scar from that moment. And what happens is forgiveness is forgiveness, but the scars still remain, and it affects things. I always use the example of in in two, year two thousand, I had back surgery, and after about two two and a half years of uh, of pain and trying to go through everything, and all the doctors running around, so I had back surgery. And you know what? I got up when I woke up. I woke up and I was. They wanted me to sit up, and I sat up, and I was expecting to be enormous amount of pain. I felt nothing. 
for the first time in two and a half years, I didn't hurt. It could have been the morphine, but I don't think so. But I can tell you this much. They said, well, why don't you stand up? And I stood up and I had no pain for the first time. And I, and I give this example for a reason. They got me up and they said, well, before you can go home, you have to be able to walk upstairs because you never know if you have stairs at your house, so you're going to have to be able to walk into your house. So we need to make sure that all your motor functions there. Now, I'll tell you this much. I didn't have any pain. I walked up the stairs. The only thing that happened for me is I really, I didn't, I felt weak and all those things. But the long story of this, the whole point of why I'm sharing this is here. Years later, I mean, a month later, I was, I got in trouble for playing volleyball and basketball. They're like, they got upset when I went to my checkup. Don't you know you have a hole in your back? You could cause more damage. I didn't know. I felt better. I felt in years. But a few years later, what happened? Begin to have scar tissue build up. In the very places where they relieve the nerves and all those things, scar tissue built up, and I began having more problems, and I ended up, what I ended up is losing the feeling in my leg. And Luke, well, I had a lot of great pain. We had to go to pain specialists, all these kind of things. But the scars hurt. The scar, that which was forgiven, that which was removed, even though it's removed, there's still a reminder there. I still have a reminder. I have, a, I have an outward scar on my back. And I have a physical scar. And then when I work, or as a, after a week like this, I have a constant reminder of the physical limitations that I have, but I still force it. And I use this always because confession is a part of repentance, and that does not mean everything is done. It takes time sometimes. Lastly this morning, let's look at this in this light. Repentance leads to rejoicing. Repentance of sin leads to rejoicing. We're going to jump back into chapter 8 in the last few verses, verses 13 through 18, in just a moment. So I'll write that down. It says, On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses and of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe and ordered to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. By the way, what month are they in? The seventh month. Listen how, how this was. And so this is what happened. They're reading the law of God. This is how much they didn't know. They're reading the word of God, and what happens? Immediately, he says, and they should, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them in, and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof or in their courts, and the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the days of uh, Yeshua, uh, the son of Nun, to the day of people of Israel had not done... Uh, from that day. So Joshua, son of Nun, and so it is. From that time had not come and done so. And there was very great rejoicing. Now I want you to think about I'm not going to read all the two, but the next point, the little sub-point says, Rejoicing is all about God's provision. I want us to get this today. This is as we're, this is a final little thing. Rejoicing, repentance leads to rejoicing, but rejoicing is always about God's provision. And I'm going to give you kind of an overview of the law. They talked about in the seventh month, the Feast of Booths. There's actually three feasts that were brought up in the book of Deuteronomy. And I gave you all that scripture there. We'll get, when you get a chance, look it up to Deuteronomy 16. It's there on the screen, but... They were observed in the month of Abib. They were to keep the Passover. When, when did the Passover happen? When did when did it happen? When was the first Passover? It was where? In Egypt. In Egypt, right? It was they were they had this Passover meal. They were told to do it. It was everyone. And after that, they even gave the the command that anyone, even a foreigner, who would submit to the law and was circumcised, he and his household, what they could partake in it as well. So we find that the first one, the first feast was the Passover feast, the Passover meal. Then we had the second one, which was the feast of unleavened bread. Okay, the third one is the feast of booths. And it talks about all these aspects. And here's the thing. 
the feast of the feast of booths, the feast of unleavened bread was a certain amount of time from the point when they cut down the grain. Okay, it was from that they brought an offering. From, it was a, a, actually a free will offering. Okay, the feast of booths. At the end of this, they would take. It was a certain, just a short period of time after that. Basically, the grain has dried up. The wine has now been has now been is ready to has been made. Um, it's now become wine. It's, it goes from the grape juice, so it goes from that press. And so, what they have here, there is a, if you want to call it not a tithe, but it was a feast based upon what the Lord had provided from the first fruits here. In all of those things, it was always a reminder of what God had provided. Passover is reminded that God provided a sacrificial lamb and passed over their homes, and from that point they passed over the Red Sea into the Promised Land. Okay, That was the whole point, taking them out of Egypt, out of slavery. The other was to remember that they went from a place where in all things that God gave them this land, and God not only God gave, He provided them, with everything that was there for them, their their, their grain, their olives, the, all the aspects of their lives were provided by God. So it's it's a feast. It's a it is a feast to, in order to remember that God has done this. And the last one is once again, it's the fulfillment of those aspects. What I want you to understand from the whole thing is, no matter what, they rejoice because of God's provision. I'm reminded in Joshua one, it says, and this is I'm going to read this whole scripture and then I'm going to close. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do the all according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Don't turn to it from the right or to the left. That, don't turn from it, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to the law uh, all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Don't be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now I want to think, you think about these two passages in situationally. What provision of God did the people in Nehemiah's day have to rejoice in? I want you to think about all that we've talked about so far. What did they have to rejoice in? Well, they were bound by debt and slavery over famine and land and taxes and all those things. They had been attacked and almost utterly destroyed. Their whole city wall and all the gates had been burned. They had no place of protection. Yet God used Nehemiah and his love for God and his people to rebuild their defenses and quench their physical hunger. And now, what's happening? Now they're quenching their hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're hungering and thirsting. They're being given the law word of God. There was much to rejoice about in the Lord. There was great strength and prosperity in the Lord as they came to know and proclaim the word of God. There was no longer fear of the days to come. They were strong and courageous and prosperous as God had promised them out of their obedience to His commands. And one of the reasons I would put this, the reason why I want to close it this way, one of the reasons I believe that we have not seen a great revival of sorts in our country, amongst the church in our day, is because there's enmity toward the law word of God. And this starts with those in pulpits. There is strife and inconsistency. I call them pulpiteers, so the pulpiteers would prefer, that's pastors with pom-poms, would prefer the idolatrous worship and praise of men rather than see men and women set free from the confines of sin 
by calling sin what it is. Sin. There are men who would rather people show up in large droves to their conferences and so forth than call sin out for what it is. They trust more in their semin- uh, seminarian and educational horses and chariots than in the power of the Holy Spirit. They trust in their, their doctor, their, their, their degrees and, and their knowledge of, of things rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. See, revival begins when with repentance of sin. And I, I wrote this this way. I wrote this down to, for a reason. Revival begins with the repentance of sin because repentance is a form of resurrection living. A continued sanctification. A purging of the old creature and filling it with the new by the power of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is necessary for, for us as Christians. And if we think that once saved, always saved, that's all it is. And I understand. Once I believe that, that nothing can... I can't lose my salvation. But I will tell you this. But part of the Christian life is to admit that we sin. And not just drown in our sin. And woe is me, I'll always be in sin. But acknowledge the sin. Be, and, and, and be convicted of that sin by the Holy Spirit. Confess that sin... Repent of that sin, that means to turn from it, and move on in rejoicing before the Lord for the freedom He gives you. We don't see that in the church. We don't see that very often anymore. We hear people talk about how to get saved. We talk about how having successful marriages or having a successful business, but we don't see the Word of God being applied to us consistently in this way that we must repent of our sin. Every one of us in this room, every person falls short of the glory of God daily. Some way. And you know what? The truth is, is most often, you might not even acknowledge it because you might not see it. Other people might. Sometimes we as parents fall short of the glory of God. We might not think. We might just go on our way. But the truth is, our kids see it. And I've shared this example. The most humble and the hardest thing to do is turn to your children and say, I am wrong. Will you forgive me? Because it goes against our culture. They're my children. I don't need to ask for their forgiveness. Absolutely you do. When you sin against God and you sin against them, you need to ask for their forgiveness. Because the thing is, is if you aren't willing... If you're not willing to do that, why would they ever do it to you? It's an aspect of honoring your father and mother. If you want to live long in the land. And we go to Ephesians 6, what does it tell us? Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't bring them to anger, but raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's one thing for us as fathers, as as mothers, to turn around and, and expect that our children are going to obey us. But the other side of that is, listen, we need to be a godly example before them. Show them how to repent. And kids, the thing is, I always I say this, just because someone, when you, when you make, we think of things, we want to always, we want to make our sin smaller than it really is. Okay? What we do is, oh, it's just a mistake. Now, sin is not a mistake. A mistake is you wrote a word wrong. A mistake is, a mistake is uh, you you left the water the water boiled over on the stove. You turned around because you were doing something real quick. That was that was not. And we would say, well, it's an accident, a mistake. It's a, that's not that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about sin, sin is not a mistake. Sin is a transgression of the law of God, the Word of God, or a willful disobedience and not doing it, a willful desire not to. And folks, that's one of the kiddos. When I look at that, I want us to think about it. When someone says something we don't like, it don't mean it's sinful. It might mean we don't like it. I mean, it is. I mean, I have people say this stuff to me, to me all the time, and I don't like it. But the thing is, is sometimes you got to hear it. When someone sins against you, saying I'm sorry is not enough. I was, I, as I was listening, and you think about the word, when you say, I'm sorry, you know what that usually means? It's just a part of your character. 
also a sorry person is not someone who's repentant, but a sorry person is a sorry person, not very well. When we say, I was wrong, what does that mean? That's confession of sin. I, I hurt you. I did not intend to hurt you. I was wrong for how I spoke in that way that I did hurt you. Will you please, why do we ask for forgiveness? Will you forgive me? Why? Because we want that relationship to be right. It's the same with our Heavenly Father. Well, I just sit down. It's the same with our Heavenly Father. When we sin against Him, we can say we're sorry, or we got caught, or what can we say? God, I was wrong. And I know I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And what I always tell the kids, I said, Lord, will you forgive me? And by your Holy Spirit, help me not to do this again. Because I can't do it without you. I, I don't see a great revival happening in our country until churches, until believers begin to put this in practice. And churches begin to put this in practice. Until they begin to not showboat you know, their, their beliefs, but actually apply, teach and apply all aspects of this. It happens on a daily basis. It happens on a regular basis on um, Sundays in churches where people don't call sin, sin. And they make promises that, they are, that are not God's Word never said. And we have to live. We have to not either live with that or we have to speak against it. This morning I want us to see that. Sin, conviction, repentance, and rejoicing are all part and parcel of the Word of God. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.